Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings to your listeners, and welcome to another edition of Credit Crunch, part of the Fick Focus podcast series. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me is my U.S. credit strategy colleague, Sam Geyer. Uh, before diving in, a little public service announcement. If you're a new or regular listener and like what we're doing at Fick Focus, please take a moment to follow, comment, and share as that helps us to keep bringing you great guests and content. Uh, today, we're digging a little bit deeper into the asset-based space, consumer financing, aircraft leasing, small and medium enterprise lending, all kinds of good stuff. And we're going to go ahead and do that with Evan Carruthers. I'm going to take a deep breath here because he is managing partner, chief investment officer, and as of April, co-chief executive officer over at Castle Lake. Castle Lake's an alternative investment company with about $20 billion in AUM out of Minneapolis. Evan, firstly, congratulations on the new seat. And secondly, great to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Great. Well, thanks, Noel. Thanks, Sam, for, for hosting. Much appreciated. Indeed. It's always great to have people that are super deep in their space come on and share their knowledge with us. So maybe that's where we start. Uh, maybe give us sort of the elevator pitch in terms of who Castle Lake is, what makes Castle Lake unique, uh, and sort of what the opportunity set that you're generally dealing with out there. Sure, so Castle Lake is a firm that was founded by myself and my partner Rory O'Neill back in 2005. Uh, and I would say the, the core brand and style of investing that we do is asset-based private credit. So we invest on a global basis. So we have an office presence in North America, Europe, uh, and Asia. And uh, really the core emphasis of our organization is asset-based investing, um, you know, with this emphasis on lending against hard assets and cash flow streams, uh, really in three different opportunity sets. Uh, so we organize our human resource base, our investment professionals um, around uh, the aviation opportunity set where we will not only buy uh, airplanes subject to operating leases, but we will also lend against them. Uh, we also have a large practice in the specialty finance arena. Uh, and specialty finance can mean different things to different organizations, but uh, for us, the core emphasis of our specialty finance practice is to uh, finance consumers and small businesses, uh, primarily in North America as well as in Europe. Uh, and then really the third leg of the stool is a real assets practice where we will uh, typically invest in land against real estate as well as different infrastructure uh, style assets that, uh, you know, have a cash flow stream associated with them as well. So as you mentioned earlier, we manage about $20 billion of assets under management uh, and we have a traditional institutional uh, uh, limited partner investor base, um, you know, that is a global investor base, you know, focused on illiquid asset-based investing and lending strategies. All right. So as listeners can tell, there's going to be a ton to dig into here, uh, but maybe we just do a little bit more foundation building before we dig in, just so everybody can kind of be up to speed. Uh, uh, maybe just lead us into sort of why asset-based lending, sort of what are what do you see as sort of the advantages or disadvantages of that kind of investing style, particularly in sort of this sort of environment, higher front-end rates, that sort of thing? 
Sure, and, and maybe I could take a quick step back and just talk a little bit about the opportunity set. Uh, and for us, when, when our investors come in and ask us, you know, what creates an opportunity for an asset-based lender like Castle Lake, uh, we typically will find opportunities uh, really when two different things happen. Uh, first and foremost, when the traditional banking system will step away and no longer finance certain assets or consumers or small businesses, there's typically going to be an opportunity set um, that uh, allows for an alternative provider of capital like ourselves to step in and fill that capital void. Uh, and then I would say the second thing that drives opportunities for us is when you get volatility in the capital markets. So when you think about a lot of asset-based credit, um, there are a lot of ABS uh, structures, asset-backed security structures, and other forms of capital market financing, uh, where when the capital markets are vibrant, a lot of those credit originators will uh, obviously set up shelves to access the ABS markets or different forms of asset-based financing. But when there's volatility and when those markets shut down in, in um, environments like we're in today, uh, that also opens up a window of opportunity for an asset-based alternative lender like ourselves to step in and, and fill that capital void. So, you know, we think of ourselves as being uh, an alternative source of capital, really in an alternative bank structure to provide financing to large swaths uh, of the real economy, whether that be a consumer, uh, whether that be a small business directly, or perhaps a small business that needs financing to buy assets um, and really maintain their economic you know, viability in a challenging macro environment like today. So, um, you know, obviously we are in a rising rate environment um, and a lot of assets, you know, do require some level of financing. And so, you know, in addition to, you know, filling that capital void, uh, we're also working with a lot of small businesses, consumers and originators to really help them address some of their capital structure needs uh, in that rising rate environment. So uh, we happen to think it's a particularly interesting time to uh, lend uh, against hard assets. Uh, the opportunity set is certainly there today. And then obviously as a lender, you know, you're I think a net beneficiary of a rising rate environment just in terms of the economics that are available in the marketplace today. And when you sort of play the market, are you predominantly uh, just an originator or do you do anything in the terms of the secondary? Do you ever sort of look out there and say, hey, listen, you know, we're able to pick stuff up cheap and build stuff that way or, or just you're mostly just on the underwriting side? Our funds allow us the flexibility to step into secondary market opportunities in addition to uh, directly originated new loans. But I would say our posture in the current market uh, is really to focus on direct newly originated credit in this environment. Uh, and I would say that that is driven by a, a couple of different factors. Um, you know, one of the things that we track quite closely is uh, just your credit box and your credit origination standards. And, you know, one of the negatives of buying secondary market credit is perhaps that credit was originated um, in a much stronger macroeconomic environment. Perhaps it was not structured appropriately to deal with some of the volatility that we're experiencing today. Um, and so we have a strong preference to take advantage of the liquidity void and the lack of credit that exists today but do it in a way where we can step in, we can newly underwrite an asset, we can newly underwrite a credit, 
we can create some structural protections that can only be created through this newly originated credit um, that allows us to you know manage our downside in what could be um, a more challenging macro over the next 12 to 24 months so um, you know there's always a price for secondary market credit but when we think about managing risk in an uncertain macro uh, we do have a strong preference for newly originated credit where you have those structural enhancements you have new enhanced covenant packages that perhaps didn't exist 12 24 36 months ago so so evan turning to kind of the addressable market and, and you've talked about those macro factors that are going on right now for, for you guys what do you see in terms of where the the best opportunities are out of those you know business areas that that you guys cover are there anywhere you're seeing particular strength uh, with everything going on right now? Yeah, so I would say there's there's a few opportunity sets that I would say have risen to the top uh, from our perspective. Uh, you know, first and foremost, um, we have been a long-standing participant in the aviation sector. Uh, that sector uh, obviously went through uh, what I would consider kind of six or seven standard deviation event uh, being negatively impacted by COVID. And so um, the airlines that obviously navigated successfully the COVID pandemic, uh, they do have a lot of financing needs. They have to bridge their capital structures to stronger times. And there's a real need for alternative credit in that type of an environment, which we can provide. Um, in addition to you know, the, the traditional airlines, you know, a lot of leasing companies or other airplane owners also are looking for financing and in many cases refinancing which is much more challenging against an airplane in a higher rate environment as well. So to the extent we can step in, uh, help bridge capital structures, help fill those liquidity voids, uh, there's real value that we can add in the aviation market. Um, and away from aviation, another large opportunity set that we're seeing is just consumer credit in general. So um, you know, a lot of the consumer credit originators that I think thrived in a very low interest rate kind of free money environment, uh, they're looking at a very different economic outcome here over the next 12 to 24 months, where they're dealing with rising rates, they're dealing with credit contraction, and a lot of those business models were really designed to perhaps get a warehouse facility from a bank, fill it up, and then bring that pool of consumer credit to the ABS markets. And I think the more uh, sophisticated, if you will, uh, originators are, um, I think, coming to uh, terms with the fact that with rates rising and capital markets volatility, you really need to think about diversifying your source of financing. And alternative credit um, has been a big diversifying source of financing that helps them keep credit originations flowing. Uh, it helps them with an alternative source of capital as they manage their own balance sheet. Uh, and I think it gives them line of sight to economic you know, viability through a more challenging you know, macroeconomic environment as well. So uh, we're seeing a lot of opportunity in aviation, certainly seeing a lot of opportunity within that specialty finance vertical uh, focused on the consumer. Uh, and then we are keeping a very close eye, for example, on commercial real estate, uh, which is a deteriorating asset class, but there's a tremendous amount of leverage against those assets today. And there's a fairly significant maturity wall that exists in commercial real estate where I think alternative forms of financing will be able to add a lot of value, helping bridge commercial real estate owners um, over the next five to six years in that, in that higher rate environment. 
Yeah, so so turning to that aviation portion of things, for you guys, I mean, obviously, the, we're talking about some pretty unbelievable events, you know, just between COVID and then obviously the Boeing Max had its fair share of issues as well. So kind of a, a big storm for the industry in general. But for you guys, how did you go about thinking about like navigating that event and concentration risk that, that happened in that particular industry? You know, it, it was an incredibly difficult um, environment to operate in as an alternative investor in, in lender. Um, you know, I don't think anyone that underwrote the aviation sector, you know, leading up to COVID thought that that was a economic outcome that they would see in their lifetimes. Um, and so it was um, really an exercise of all hands on deck uh, rolling up your sleeves, um, I think working with your counterparties um, and doing it in a way that would allow for airlines and allow for other asset owners to bridge to um, a better economic outcome and help them work their way through COVID. And so we um, happen to be uh, the beneficiaries of a very large servicing apparatus. So not only are we an investment manager that invests capital on behalf of our limited partners, but we also um, own and manage one of the largest aircraft servicers um, that allows for kind of high touch asset management of airplanes and credits. And, you know, we obviously aggressively engaged um, that human resource base to help us work through this, this draconian scenario. So, um, you know, I think we, we had to um, really be intelligent about how we worked with counterparties and you know who are going to be the survivors um, and who are not likely to survive, uh, and I think really be a constructive counterparty or a constructive lender to help bridge um, airlines, for example, um, through that COVID-19 pandemic. Because the reality was there's no airline in the world that knew COVID was going to happen. Um, and frankly, it wasn't their fault that it did happen. Um, and I think you have to uh, take more of a long-term approach to really partner with your counterparties in those situations um, and work with them to, you know, better economic outcomes. But obviously, in a, yeah, uh, I apologize, in a, an environment like that, um, there's re there's a real premium on liquidity as well. So to the extent we could bring our capital to the table, um, it added a tremendous amount of value in that environment as well. And looking back at it now, do you see that that you know, that tail risk event happening, has it kind of changed how you guys approach certain things? Like, you know, in, in I guess, preparing for those types of events, is there anything that you guys have looked back on and said, okay, you know, maybe we could have done this differently or, or the, that differently. What are you guys seeing on, on that end in terms of the preparation for something like that? Yeah, you, you certainly reflect on an environment like that and, and there are a tremendous amount of lessons learned. And um, just like in a lot of other asset classes, I think to the extent you manage capital through the GFC, you learned a lot of lessons in the GFC that you probably uh, perhaps wish you didn't learn, but you did. Um, and I think in the aviation sector, you know, COVID was, um, you know, the, the shock event that, um, you know, I think truly stressed um, everyone that participated in the marketplace. And I think it's influenced our underwriting standards on a go forward basis. And so when you think of downside underwriting, um, you, you have to think about something coming out of left field like a COVID event. Um, and you need to make sure that you're protecting yourself on a go forward basis if something like that happens again. 
Um, but I, I, I also think that um, we're quite proud of our risk management capabilities. Um, one of the reasons why we own that infrastructure and we own that servicing capability um, is I think our core philosophy around aviation investing is, you know, they're good hard assets, they're ubiquitous, and they have good contractual cash flow streams attached to them. Uh, but if you are going to be a participant in the aviation space, um, you know, through the duration of a fund life, which might be seven to 10 years, you have to assume something's going to go wrong. Uh, that might be a baseline recession. It could be something that comes out of left field like COVID. Um, and to the extent you can manage some of that cyclical risk or some of that kind of something coming out of left field risk in the aviation sector, and you can manage your downside in those events, you can do quite well, and there's enough yield to generate interesting alternative sets of returns. So it's making sure you engage that human resource base, you protect your downside, and then you tighten your underwriting standards and you think about some of the different negative outcomes that could occur on a go-forward basis, and that certainly influences how we deploy capital today. So turning back real quick to kind of that foundational of the firm itself, um, for, for you guys, where did you see in terms of, you know, you guys, the evolution of what you guys are focusing on? And I guess I'm curious, do you guys see opportunities for growth in the future? Like, are there other areas of the business where, you know, you think you could expand a little bit more uh, in, in the coming months or, you know, a couple of years, I guess? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And, and I think it's, it's, it's something that every GP debates. Um, you know, uh, how much product extension do you want to do uh, versus staying focused on, on, you know, what you're good at and your core expertise? And I would say over the last three or four years, uh, we've probably gone in the, in, in the opposite direction. We've said, you know what, um, you know, we want to stay focused on these critical verticals where we have a lot of expertise where we've worked these types of assets, you know, through very bad economic scenarios like the GFC or like COVID. And we want to stay focused on that, what we know best. And I think it's easier to do that when you have an expanding opportunity set. Um, and really in most of the asset classes that we invest in, you, you do see that expansion of the opportunity set, which allows you to maintain that focus, but not feel like um, you're sacrificing growth or you're sacrificing the go-forward viability of your firm. Um, and I think it's usually in, in very rosy economic environments when perhaps there's not enough yield in a lot of, um, you know, GP's core asset classes. That's usually the environment where they tend to migrate into something they don't know as well um, in a search for yield. And I think in a lot of cases, you know, that's when mistakes happen. Um, and so when we think about the environment today, the economic uncertainty, but an expanding opportunity set, uh, we think that core focus matters, you know, staying focused on what we know um, and deploying more capital into what are some of the largest um, investment sectors in the world. If you think about financing consumers, financing small businesses, uh, there's a lot of depth in those markets, which, you know, certainly helps us um, gain conviction on, on maintaining that focus. I want to maybe pivot a little bit here or maybe uh, work along the continuum and talk a little bit about innovation because this is something that, you know, when we've talked in the past, uh, it's, you know, innovation is this thing that seems to sort of regularly come up and seems to be sort of a thing that Castle Lake really relishes in terms of 
looking at sort of complex situations and sort of coming up with sort of solutions to that. Uh, so, so maybe help me or walk me through sort of the life cycle here of an example, obviously, in terms of if you peruse like the websites or the newsreels or whatever else, you got a couple of deals out there like the upstart or the trade bridge or some of those things. But maybe walk through sort of how uh, how you guys look at complexity and the innovation sort of uh, in relation to that. Yeah, I think innovation is um, and will continue to be a core focus for our firm. Um, and and I think that innovation is really driven by having a um, active dialogue with your counterparties. And, uh, you know, the upstart transaction was a great example. For a lot of consumer credit originators, I think they were heavily reliant on this warehouse do capital markets model. Um, and they're looking for alternative sources of financing um, that, you know, allow them to be a viable ongoing enterprise and keep that origination up. Uh, but really the concept of uh, a private loan solution, for example, in the case of Upstart, that is designed to look like a securitization, but it comes from an alternative form of capital, you know, that innovation um, is, is accomplished through that ongoing dialogue uh, with your counterparty. And so I think we have to be a flexible and creative counterparty. Uh, we have to engage something like, uh, you know, securitization technology but be able to do it through a private lens to accomplish the goals of those counterparties. And I think if you look back on our history and track record, uh, we've come up with innovative financing structures that really bring a differentiated source of capital to the table, to your counterparty, uh, that allows for perhaps a little bit more flexibility than a traditional capital markets vehicle, where you're usually solving for ratings or some rating paradigm. Um, and a lot of times the capital markets are not particularly sympathetic to structural change. Um, they like structural change if it benefits um, the investor. They generally don't like structural change if it benefits the issuer and it provides flexibility. And I think alternative lenders can step in and they can create new structures that have demonstrated viability on a go forward basis. And that's also um, a key element of um, originating and develop those relationships as an asset-based lender uh, where you can really add value to your counterparty while I think, you know, generating differentiated returns for your, for your LPs. Now, some of that just sort of a, it strikes me as you're talking about it, that there's a, there's a component of it that's sort of a scale game, right? You need to be sort of a certain size and have a certain sort of a track record to sort of even be in that game of uh, generating those solutions. Is that sort of a fair assessment or? I would say in, in certain circumstances, yes. Um, but, you know, a lot of times we will um, work with a counterparty and we'll start small. And, um, you know, we will put a structure in front of them. We will start small. Uh, and some of that is, is our choice where, um, you know, perhaps the right thing to do is to set up a facility that can grow over time, uh, work with that originator, work with that counterparty, uh, try to get credit originated through that box and perhaps through that private loan solution. And as, you know, the lender and the counterparty get more comfortable um, with that partnership, um, you know, you can scale into it. And I, I, I think today that's incredibly important because I, I think that uh, not all originators are comfortable working with alternative capital. And so you do a lot of handholding to get them comfortable with that. Um, you know, some of that discomfort is, you know, we, we are 
um, I think in some instances, a, a higher cost of capital than bringing something to the capital markets. Um, and you know, it also allows us to test that originator, make sure we really understand their origination underwriting standards, their credit box, uh, before we step in and get too large. Um, and so it's a, it's a give and a take. Um, and I don't think size is always the key determinant um, in whether you're winning a deal or not. Um, and a lot of times, you know, how we compete is, is perhaps to be a little bit smaller in certain circumstances, but br bring a creative solution to the table that adds value uh, to that CFO who's trying to solve a particular capital structure issue. So, I mean, I guess you've kind of partially answered this question already, but I guess I, I look for a little bit more clarification in terms of, is there really, like, is there a sweet spot for you guys in terms of you'd love to be able to cut a check for X amount, or you only want a certain kind of exposure in terms of duration, uh, or, or is it just really sort of, you know, evaluating the opportunities that come through the door and, and, you know, a $25 million check is the same as a $200 million check. Yeah, generally for our fund sizes, um, you know, our average tech check size would probably be on the low end about 25 million, on the high end several hundred million uh, dollars annually would be the average check size. Um, you know, we, I guess, are a net beneficiary of not having um, real size limitations like some of the big players. And and I think if you're bringing a 250 billion dollar balance sheet to the table. You know your 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 smallest check size you can do is probably four to five hundred million. So we have the the ability to be down market, um, and 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 not have that that size limitation. Um, and the best way I can answer it is, you know, obviously if you think something is a great transaction and it's downside protected, um, and it's a great return for your LP base, um, you know, on the margin, you'd rather do a fifty million dollar deal than a twenty five million dollar deal. But it's really the underwriting standard that should carry the day. Um, and when I think about mistakes that GPs make, um, it's chasing size um, while sacrificing underwriting standards. Um, that's always that's always a problem. And so you know we try to think about it as being disciplined around a credit box, being disciplined about your underwriting standards, and then to the extent you can scale from there, um, that's usually green light go. Uh, but it should be the underwriting standards that dictates uh, whether we lean in with with our capital. And then in terms of just in terms of the exposure to the deal, once you sort of get involved here, are you holding them on balance sheet? Are you syndicating some of these things? Are you like, what's the sort of uh, ownership structure after you actually get engaged? Yeah, so t typically we'll we'll do it in one or two formats. Um, you know, one format we do is we just originate whole loans and we hold them on balance sheet. And so depending on the sector and depending on, um, you know, whether you could create rated debt, for example, through a securitization structure, that a lot of times will dictate whether we just own a whole loan on balance sheet versus putting it into some form of a securitization structure that is then tranched where you get the senior rated. Um, and in many of those instances in a private loan solution that has a look and feel of a securitization, we will typically try to create an investment grade senior tranche that'll typically be um, you know, A-rated. In some instances, it'll be triple B-rated that we will consciously design for an investment grade counterparty like an insurance company um, that is also looking for you know, private investment grade credit that perhaps generates an extra 50 or 75 basis points of return. So in some instances, we will syndicate the senior down 
and then we will ho hold, for example, the mezzanine risk that is typically non-rated, but in other instances, we will just own the entirety of the whole loan, you know, depending on that industry and the asset class and what ratings could be accomplished through that structure. And turning to the, the competition in the space, I'm curious, have you seen like the impact from larger players? I, I know you just mentioned, obviously, they're a little bit, I guess, constrained in a way by that check size that they have to write. But could you just talk about, you know, how you see the impact of, of more of these larger firms starting to kind of, you know, move into this space right now? Yeah, there's there's definitely an impact. In, and, and I would say that, you know, that trend will continue. Um, and, and I think, you know, the larger firms migrating into our space, um, I think, comes in two forms. Uh, first, um, you know, asset-based credit, in, in my opinion, is in the second inning when you compare it to what you've seen on corporate direct lending. Um, and so for a lot of the corporate direct lenders, which is a more mature market, uh, perhaps some people think it's saturated with capital. Um, I do think you will see those corporate direct lenders uh, look over the fence and start migrating into asset-based opportunities. Uh, but that can certainly be a difficult transition uh, when you don't have that core expertise and you haven't managed these types of assets you know, through a challenging macro. Um, I think the other form of competition, which um, you know, is, is newer to the marketplace in, in the last five to seven years, um, are the insurance companies that are owned by the large asset managers. Uh, where you've got big balance sheets, you've got big permanent capital vehicles, and if you really understand the regulatory capital requirements of an insurance entity, what you realize is a core of generating returns for insurance entities away from, you know, owning, uh, you know, corporate-rated public fixed income um, is the asset-backed markets. And I think what these large asset aggregators have realized is to the extent you can acquire, um, you know, uh, annuities, for example, and you can create these large balance sheet insurance vehicles, and you can perhaps apply a more sophisticated lens to managing those assets, primarily by doing a lot of private um, rated and in some instances non-rated asset-based lending opportunities, that might generate an extra 25 basis points of return, uh, you can compete quite well and you can grow those insurance company franchises, which is really the core of their credit businesses on a go forward basis. So you do have you know, some very large participants, I don't need to name names, I think everyone knows who they are, that I think have targeted um, asset-based lending as being one of the engines, if you will, to generate excess yield for an insurance company balance sheet uh, that perhaps can outcompete a lot of the insurance companies that are not attached to that more sophisticated, um, you know, investment apparatus. Um, so we do see those players in the space. Um, I think generally they're uh, a bit handcuffed by deal size uh, because they they have so much capital um, at their discretion that I think it's very difficult for them uh, from a sort of return on time perspective to do a $25, $50 million transaction, for example. Yeah, and, and one of our recent guests referred to, you know, those larger players as as tourists, which uh, I think, you know, based on what you're saying, sounds like a pretty uh, fair assessment. Uh, on your end, do you see that as a pretty fair characterization? Um, or are you worried about, you know, 
them potentially trying to make some uh, amendments or changes to that that deal size that they're able to cut on their end for those bigger firms? Uh, you know, cer certainly some um, will end up being tourists. Um, and I, I think that tourist type behavior usually happens when your core business and the opportunity set surrounding that core business deteriorates um, and, and, and you have access to capital that you want deployed. Um, and that tourist activity usually continues until the opportunity set in the core business comes back. And then once the opportunity set in the core business comes back, um, you know, those GPs have the tendency to focus on what they know best, um, similar to how I described our focus today, um, and they migrate back. So I do think some of the larger firms, they will stretch into asset-based lending, uh, but when there's perhaps a larger corporate direct lending opportunity, they will toggle back. Uh, but I also think that some of them consciously have decided this is going to be a new business line uh, that we're going to grow, um, and we want to take advantage of asset-based lending. Um, as a uh, perhaps um, you know less mature industry where we can we can add value and we can bring value to our LPs. So I think there'll be a little bit of both. Um, I, but I would be disingenuous if I said that you know all these players are going to go away in a couple of years um, and they're just here episodically because I do think that that there will be some of those players uh, that continue to focus on this market. Yeah, and and another area that I want to touch on, just in terms of, uh, you know, some some of the commentary that I've been reading about private markets in general. Some people think that you know they understate volatility given you know lack to mark mark to market. How do you think about like your asset liability mismatches in terms of your investments versus you know that broader liquidity that you're providing to your investor base? Yeah, so you know, generally the way that that we manage it, um, most of the lending that we're doing today, I, I would say, is shorter duration lending. Um, and so, when you think about asset liability mismatches, you know, a lot of the institutional closed-end pools of capital that we might raise you know, on the short end could be five to seven-year pools, on the long end could be ten-year pools. Uh, and generally speaking, we're lending short from a duration perspective. Um, and so, you know, that one of the net benefits of that is, you know, it helps you manage um, that asset liability mismatch. Uh, but the other reason why we do that is, you know, we like doing high cash flow, shorter duration transactions in a deteriorating macro because you get a quicker basis pay down. Um, and we find that it protects your downside and it protects the risk in a transaction to the extent we end up in a um, for example, you know, hard landing recession um, over the next 12 to 24 months. And so uh, generally our posture as a firm, we're lending short today. Um, um, and, you know, that's, that, that certainly hap you know, happens to benefit that asset liability mismatch that can occur, uh, but it's a risk decision as well. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, when you talk about marks and you talk about a lack of volatility in private credit, um, I, I do think, uh, a question that um, your rank and file LP should ask is, you know, how much lending did that, um, you know, private lender do in 2017, 2018, 2019? Um, and if you end up in a hard landing scenario, you know, how are you thinking about um, firefighting in your own portfolio and playing defense versus, you know, taking advantage of the opportunity and playing offense? And I do think that um, and it, it, the right question for an LP to ask is, well, how much lending did you do 
when you know deteriorating lending standards were prevalent um and how much lending did you do without the right covenant package or the right uh, without the right structure um and how do you balance you know managing a big portfolio through volatility and the resources required to do that restructuring work um, and work through those challenges while trying to engage your employee base to originate new credit. Um, I do think that will be a real question people need to ask themselves um, if, if things get a bit rocky here um, in the next couple of years. Yeah, and then real quick, actually turning back to kind of the competition and I guess the growth of the asset-backed space and private credit more generally, you know, I, I think we've been seeing quite a few headlines of, you know, sell-side firms building out some trading desks and, and new firms kind of across direct lending and asset backspace getting built out. For you guys, you know, how are you seeing that distribution of that growth? Or is it pretty, you know, spread out across the various areas of private credit? Or are you seeing that kind of effectively crowding into one particular trade? I, I know you mentioned direct lending has gotten a pretty pretty big interest recently. So just curious on, on some more thoughts there. You know, when you talk about um, the trading desk getting more involved in private credit, I think most of those trading desks, um, the core of that business they're trying to build is corporate direct lending. Um, you know, they will migrate into assets, but I, I think most of those firms look at the return on work equation. Um, and where I think they believe they can add value is um, you know, a lot of LBOs, for example, are getting financed with private credit today, as opposed to your traditional, you know, syndicated bank loan. And so those banks um, are, you know, maybe taking a step, one standard deviation away from their core business and focusing on private credit, uh, lending against corporates, which is a business that they know and, and, and they fully understand. Um, I, I do think some of them will uh, attempt to step into um, you know, the asset-based markets, um, but I, I don't think it's, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be core. Um, so, but, you know, uh, remains to be seen how it evolves. Um, and, um, you know, one thing I would, I would say is, um, you know, there is, you know, some barriers to entry to step into the asset-based market. Um, and I think the barriers to entry are one, um, you know, origination and how do you originate that credit? Um, and I think it's a, it's a wildly different origination strategy to work with sponsors or work with corporates to, you know, finance traditional cash flow loans uh, versus understanding who the asset originators are and who the counterparties are in the asset-based market um, and bringing constructive solutions to the table that don't look anything like a traditional corporate loan. So um, I think origination is a barrier to entry. Um, and then I also think just comfort in underwriting um, is also a barrier to entry. Um, and when we talk to um, you know, our LPs, for example, they ask us all the time, well, how can you get comfort, for example, lending to consumers or lending to small businesses? Um, and, and we say a couple of things. You know, first and foremost, you know, these are big proven asset classes where you actually have a lot of data that goes through something like a GFC that can inform your thinking around what a real stress case scenario looks like, extending credit to small business or, or, or perhaps consumers. Um, and then the other thing that we say is, um, because we have been lending in these spaces for so long, we have very large and expansive data sets ourselves. 
that allows us to track consumer behavior, small business behavior, real time in this environment, which just helps you underwrite your next deal. Um, and in the US, I think we have access to 30 million consumer accounts. Um, and we view that as a key underwriting differentiator for our firm. When we think about extending credit to a particular cohort of a consumer, we have the data that we can track daily, weekly, monthly, that gives you a really good insight into how that consumer is likely gonna behave on a go forward basis. And we use that to our advantage when we underwrite. So um, that's why we stay focused and we stay deep because it allows for that underwriting precision and I think it helps manage risk. Uh, other firms, unless they have been a player for as long as we have, they don't have that data, they don't have that underwriting capability. Um, and I think we'll find it to be a higher barrier to entry than perhaps they initially believed. So I want to maybe pull on a couple of those threads there because, uh, you know, given as you kind of reference the history of the firm, and I think you're 2005 uh, when you guys started up, you and Rory. So you've been through, you know, the great financial crisis, as you mentioned, but you also have the European sovereign debt crisis. Then you also have this very extended wave of sort of financial repression uh, by global central banks, et cetera. Uh, and then obviously the volatility more recently. Is there an environment that you kind of get excited about? Uh, and then sort of like as sort of the landscape shifts, uh, you know, how do you sort of pivot your strategy in relation to that landscape? Yeah, it's it's, it's a great question. And, and, and getting back to some earlier comments I made, you know, a, a, a real green light go environment for us is when, you know, banks are no longer extending credit um, and perhaps they're getting regulated out of certain markets and you have extreme capital market volatility. Um, you know, those those um, events typically coincide with a rocky macroeconomic environment. Uh, but what we really track is capital flows. Um, because th those capital flows, whether it's access to the ABS markets or traditional capital markets, or it's bank lending, um, the more capital that's available, uh, that deteriorates your credit box and it deteriorates your underwriting standard. And so, um, you know, as, a, as an asset-based lender, you're not shooting for 30, 35% IRRs like you would in venture capital or private equity. Um, you're, you're delivering to your LPs very interesting alternative style returns, but you know they do not want you taking too much risk. And so for us, a green light go environment is when a lot of that capital steps away from a particular asset class in an industry, we can go in with a very tight underwriting box that's gonna be kind of a durable underwriting box through a very challenging macro, and we can deploy a lot of capital into it through that direct origination. Um, so that's the green light go market for us. Uh, but what I would say is, you know, that credit box is certainly informed by experience. And um, I think one of the challenges for an investor looking to step into private credit today is most private credit firms, let's face it, they were created and they were scaled post the GFC. Um, and there are very few uh, investment managers that worked big portfolios through the GFC um, and I think exist today. And that experience base matters because I think it informs your view on how bad things can get, how tight your credit underwriting box needs to be to deliver, deliver for example, a durable 12% rate of return. 
Um, and the key for us, you know, for example, in this market environment, you know, some of our investors will say, well, shouldn't you be shooting for an extra three or 400 basis points of return? And our answer is no, that's not what we want to do. What we want to do is deliver you pretty much the same return. Maybe we'll capture an extra 100 or 150 basis points in this environment, but we want to do it with materially less risk than what could have been delivered two, three, four years ago when there was a lot of capital available, you had a lower interest rate environment. And we do that by tightening that underwriting box. We do that through structural protections, through covenants. And so philosophically, we think now is a great time to lend um, if you can tighten that underwriting box and if you can layer in a lot of that um, downside protection in your deals without feeling like you're stretching for a return. Yeah, as you say, green means go. I don't know why, but the a children's song my kids used to listen to, red means stop, greens mean go, and then like the music starts and everybody dances around. Seems appropriate, I guess, uh, for this particular thing. But uh you know, one thing we haven't touched on here is is really geography, right? I think we focus a lot on sort of like what's happening, uh, certainly in the U.S. market, because it seems like there's quite a bit to do there. But as you mentioned, I think you have uh, Asia and Europe as well. So maybe talk me through in terms of how you evaluate. Uh, are they discrete buckets in terms of when you think about the global assets? Are you looking at them in comparison with the U.S. opportunity? Uh, and then how do you go about evaluating markets that have inherently different cultures and structures in terms of how consumers behave, et cetera? Uh, we're certainly making um, a very sophisticated relative value analysis, you know, across the geographies, which I do think is particularly relevant today uh, for two reasons. Um, one, uh, you know, I think, I think we've invested in probably 70 different countries around the world. Um, and we have a, an acute understanding of, of what I would call jurisdictional risk. Um, and one of the benefits that we have as an asset-based lender um, is you can, you can avoid um, a bankruptcy proceeding, for example, or an insolvency, because typically we're financing assets in a non-recourse structure that gives you line of sight to an enforcement action. Uh, but you have to really understand that enforcement action in the context of the jurisdiction that you're investing in. Um, and w when you invest across 70 different geographies, um, that jurisdictional analysis matters greatly, um, and you figure out very quickly what are clean enforcement jurisdictions and what are messy enforcement jurisdictions, uh, where perhaps the rule of law and, and what happens in practice can be wildly different things. Um, so you absolutely incorporate that jurisdictional analysis um, into your thinking. The, the second thing that I would say is, you know, in, in today's market, when you look at the different interest rate environments, I don't think we've ever seen so much divergent in, divergence in interest rates. Um, you know, there are places like Brazil that were incredibly aggressive raising rates very quickly because I think they understand what inflation means. They're very aggressive. Um, I think the U.S. Fed, to their credit, um, I think they're being very disciplined about maintaining higher rates trying to cool the labor market, um, and you know you have a higher rate environment in the States than you do in Europe, and certainly than you do in, in Asia. And I would say from a lending perspective, we're not particularly interested in lending in Asia when you still have a vibrancy of low cost capital coming from banks, coming from different financial institutions that may be government supported, and so they're 
They're not, you know, regulated by the markets, if you will. Um, you know, that's not a particularly interesting environment to be lending into. So you do this relative value analysis based on jurisdictional risk, uh, but you also do it based on capital flows in the rate environment. Um, and, you know, some of the lower risk jurisdictions right now also benefit from high rates. And that's a pretty interesting dynamic to lend into when you're a firm that can migrate through a lot of different jurisdictions and kind of pick your spots. And one of the symptoms I think that we've been seeing on the, the public corporate side is defaults. We've seen defaults starting to tick up um, on our end. And I, I think for both Noel and I, we agree that those defaults will also continue to rise through the end of the year and potentially into 2024. For you guys, how have you seen the trends in defaults? Um, are, are you guys seeing them steadily ticking up or um, if they have, you know, what sort of impact has that had on your guys' end? Yeah, in, in certain markets, there have been increased frequencies of defaults. Um, you know, aviation is a bit unique, but there are obvious examples of, you know, airlines that didn't make it through COVID, um, and you had a you had a precipitous spike in defaults. Um, but you know that that's really driven by um, aviation's impact by 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 COVID nineteen. But really, away from aviation you did have a period of time and, and I would categorize it as late, um, you know, late uh, 2020 into, um, you know, probably the end of 2021, where you saw lending standards deteriorate very significantly um, in the asset-based markets. There was too much capital chasing it. Um, everyone was bullish on growth. Uh, underwriting standards deteriorated. People were pricing everything to perfection. And whether you're looking at subprime auto, whether you're looking at consumer ABS, whether you're looking at you know small business lending, um, there are certain uh, vintages, you know quarterly vintages that are showing a meaningful amount of deterioration. And it all gets back to that earlier statement I made, which is you know what is your underwriting box? How tight was it? Um, and you know some people that talk to us in diligence processes today. Um, they have a hard time understanding, well, shouldn't you be incredibly concerned about the consumer? Um, and we say, yeah, you should be concerned about consumer deterioration, but what you should really focus on is, you know, what sort of credit can you extend? And when people, when people thought the consumer was incredibly vibrant in the beginning of 2021, that's when underwriting standards loosened, and that's precisely when you shouldn't have deployed capital. Um, and now that people can understand what a negative macro outcome might look like, and they've tightened that underwriting box, even though you should be concerned about a consumer, um, you have an environment where it's constructive to be a lender. Um, and so you did see a lot of deterioration in certain markets that was driven by loose underwriting and loose credit boxes. Uh, but I think in today's environment, those credit boxes have tightened to a point where you can underwrite some very uh, negative economic scenarios and feel like you're reasonably downside protected um, and you know it's a good time to deploy capital. And I want to stay mindful of time here so we're going to move into the last couple of questions but you'd mentioned capital flows as sort of being a key thing to watch and I'm just sort of curious is there sort of another 
metric or, or, or economic data point that you go, you know what, this is sort of one of the most, I mean, obviously you get such a diverse sort of uh, asset base that there's probably no one single uh, metric there. But, uh, you know, I'm just sort of curious, like, what do you watch uh, to sort of gauge whether you think the tide's turning or, or is it maybe sort of something that just comes through the internal agonculator, uh, given all the data that you guys collect? Yeah, so um, you know we're we're tracking our data um, fairly closely to just look for signs of deterioration in the underlying assets um, or credits that we're underwriting. Um, that that's certainly something that we look at very closely. That um, will, um, in some instances, allow us to lean forward in a sector. In other instances, we're pulling back. Um, so that internal data matters greatly. Um, you know, the other thing that I would reference. Which is which is also important is is just you know what is going on in the capital markets right and um, is high yield new issuance going up um, you know is is the ABS deal pipeline um, you know increasing and are those deals getting priced at um, you know reasonable costs of capital um, and you know usually when that ABS market is quite vibrant and the cost of capital is getting driven down. Um, from my seat, that's usually an indication that we should step back from that sector um, because we are not going to compete economically, um, both in terms of, of the price of our capital and the coupons, but also structure when, you know, that rated traditional capital markets ABS vehicle starts to open up and provide liquidity. Um, so, you know, those are a few things that we track, which is associated with capital flows to a certain degree. Um, that are key indicators of should you be lending and should you not be lending and how aggressive should you be. All right. So lastly, uh, you know, given that you are a co-founder and, and uh, you know, have been with the firm since day one, I guess as you think about how the firm's been built, uh, one of the things I always like to ask people that are in your seat is sort of how do they think about uh, the culture of the firm? Are there any keystones that you think sort of to mark Castle Lake and, and say, these are our keys to success, or this is the type of company culture that we want to have. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and culture, um, you know, it's an emphasis for us, uh, primarily because it's one of the ways that we can differentiate ourselves when we compete for human capital. Um, and generally speaking, um, you know, a, a $20 billion firm is going to have a hard time competing with a 750 or trillion dollar um, AUM firm in terms of just cutting cash checks to pay for employees. Uh, but where we can compete is, you know, corporate culture. Um, you know, we we have Midwestern roots, which we're quite proud of, um, and I think we take pride in um, hopefully doing right by employees, but also doing right um, by our counterparties and by our LPs. And, um, you know, as, as I, I would say, the labor markets got quite competitive over the last two, three, four years. Um, it's, it's one of the things that we've really emphasized um, and I think has allowed us to retain a lot of talent and attract a lot of talent. Uh, because I think, you know, one of the psychological factors that, um, that COVID brought to the forefront is people really reevaluated um, um, how they spend their time, where they work and why they work there. Um, and I think we found um, our firm and the values associated with our firm um, as being quite interesting to an employee base 
Um, and it's certainly helpful, you know, as, as we evaluate, um, you know, our firm on a go forward basis and we think about, you know, how can you attract talent and how can you retain it once it's there? Um, and we, we, we try to have relatively low turnover um, and, you know, we, we want to attract a high level of talent and really punch above our weight, if you will, uh, being a $20 billion asset manager. And, and to your point, corporate culture, it does matter. Uh, because it's one of the few things that we can do that's that's in our control that really allows us to effectively compete in in that human capital market. Well, and you got lawn bowling out there, and I think that's sort of critical. Absolutely. So for anybody that doesn't know what lawn bowling is, check out uh, Brit's Pub over in Minneapolis. Uh, but with that, uh, Evan, on behalf of Sam and myself, thanks so much once again. Uh, for joining us today. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining us once again on this edition of Credit Crunch.